need to be again. Uh, we turn in the Word of God now to John chapter 1. And uh, we are in a brief series this December looking at the various ways that Jesus is introduced to us in the various Gospels and indeed what this means for the rest of the book that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and now John are writing at the beginning of a book, when we are introduced to a main character in general, literary theory, the uh, introduction is very important, often has something to do with what's going to happen or the, uh, uh, what we need to know for the rest of the story to come together. And so it is here in John chapter 1. The dominant theme is struck right from the first verse. But I'd like to read to you the whole introduction or prologue down to verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace." For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Let's pray once more together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would declare him one more time. We pray that this uh, precious introduction would uh, fill our horizons this evening and that we would behold your glory that glory of the, as of the only begotten that express image of your person that radiance of your being that has shone forth in our lord jesus christ we pray that you would enlighten us of yourself in him and in these words tonight we pray it for his sake amen when we consider our Lord Jesus coming into the world, we naturally, certainly this time of year, consider him as the babe, the poor babe in the manger, visited by shepherds, the sinner's savior, 
as he's introduced to us in the Gospel of Luke. And we think of him as the one who came forth as the royal seed of David, worshipped as the Christ, the king of the Jews, even by those who brought him royal presence, the Gentiles, the oriental wise men, as introduced to us in the Gospel of Matthew. But here in the Gospel of John, we find a very, very different introduction indeed. John takes us not to Bethlehem, but to the beginning. He calls our minds back to the very first lines of the Bible, where we find God, the Creator, and there the Spirit of God hovering over the formless waters. But suddenly the Word of God, by which all things were made, comes forth. Let there be light. That Word was with God. And that Word was God. And it is difficult to imagine a more profound beginning to introduce us to Jesus. Both Genesis and John, of course, start in the beginning, but while the Greeks started, excuse me, but while Genesis started at that point and then worked forward, telling us what followed, John works the other direction. He tells us of the beginning and then what preceded, that there before there was anything in the creation, what lies behind time and space was that in the beginning the Word already was with God and who was God. And I'd like us to meditate on the wonder of this opening line, just the phrases that are given to us in the order that they are given in order that we might see this magnificent introduction to Jesus and consider this babe in the manger, this, <clears throat> this one who was born king of the Jews in a whole new light as John wishes to present him, to introduce him to us as the one who in the beginning was with God and who was God as the Word. So just considering the, phrase, the, the, the two uh, parts of the, the first verse in order, first we read, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Well, of the many brilliant things in this passage that I've read to you, John introduces Jesus to us, you notice, not by name. In fact, we don't find out who he's talking about until verse 14. Uh, John introduces us to the word, uh, logos, in Greek. And, and what would the original readers have possibly understood by this? What, what would they have thought when they read this opening line, in the beginning was the logos, the word? What would the Jewish readers or the Greek readers of John's day think? Well, as I've already pointed out, of course, these first three words of the Gospel of John would immediately take every Jewish person back to the first words of the book of Genesis, where we're told, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made it all things by the word of his power. And there and everywhere since then, we find God accomplishing great things for his people through his word. Uh, Psalm 107, he sent his word and healed them, or saved them, and delivered them from their destruction. God's word not only made us, but delivers us. It accomplishes his will. In Isaiah, God says, So my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me void, but it will accomplish that for which I desire, the purpose for which I sent it. And so any Jewish reader naturally would understand that God creates by his word and redeems by his word. He acts and reveals himself through his word. And so that word that was with God and was God takes us back to the very beginning. And that idea is introduced all throughout the opening prologue here. This uh, word through whom the heavens and the earth were made, the world was made through him and so forth. But then 
we read suddenly in verse 14 that that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And again, any Jewish reader would pick up that word dwelt is the same word as tabernacled, not the regular word for dwelling or abiding that's used throughout the Gospel of John, that, that he pitched his tent among us. And so I say for anyone familiar with the Old Testament, a phrase would immediately call to mind the tent of meeting where God dwelt in the midst of his people. And you remember what he told Moses, have them make a sanctuary and I will dwell among them using the noun form of the same verb that John uses here. And the meaning is plain. God has chosen now to dwell among his people, setting his word in their midst in a very personal and immediate way. That word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So it doesn't answer every question, but to the Hebrew reader following this line by line, who was sort of tracking when we read about the word creating all things and doing all these things uh, and then becoming flesh to tabernacle among us. It, it is a staggering thought, certainly, but there are hooks. There's, there, there's a way that the Hebrew mind can understand what's being said. In the beginning was the word, that word that became flesh and tabernacled among us. All right. What about the Greeks? who didn't have any of this background, what, what would they have thought when they picked up the Gospel of John? As it's very clear from the book that Jesus, excuse me, that John is writing to Greeks as well. He explains words and customs and so forth. He's writing to Greeks. But what would his Greek audience think as, as they read this logos? In the beginning was the logos? What would it mean to them? Well, that Greek word logos is not only where we get the word logic, but it's, all, it's where we get all of our ologies, biology, uh, geology, sociology, right, uh, and so forth. All these various studies of the world and its order have come to us from this same word, logos, because the Greeks looked at the world and they saw order, predictability. They could tell you what time the sun would rise. They could calculate the distance of the earth to the moon with some fair accuracy, actually, and the temperature at which water boils. And everywhere they looked, they see there's this order, this purpose, this wisdom. There's a logic to everything. And the Greeks said there must be some overall rational principle in the universe behind this. That's what they called the logos. Let me, let me read you the brilliant explanation by Jim Boyce, if you will follow along with me. About 600 years, he writes, before the birth of Christ, there was this philosopher who lived in Ephesus whose name was, as you all know, Heraclitus, right? Tip of your tongue. Well, he, he's an early Greek philosopher. He's a philosopher who said you can't ever step twice into the same river, meaning that life itself is in this perpetual change. And the river illustration means, hey, you can you can step into it and step out of it again, but by the time you step into it the second time, the river will have flowed on, and it's no longer the same river. And to Heraclitus, this just seemed like all of life, that there was this constant flux and change. Everything was in this state of change. Nothing was holding still, not even us. And yet, he said, if that's so, why isn't everything in just chaos? Why isn't everything just now moving off in all kinds of direction at once? And that question of his 
was taken up by, by the Greek philosophers after that. Heraclitus had said, nature is not in chaos because despite all the change that we see, it's not just random change. This is ordered change. Uh, this must be the way it is because there is some all-embracing mind, reason, and order that is in control of all these changes that we see. Heraclitus didn't know what this divine mind was or what it was even to be called. He just called it the Logos. And according to Heraclitus, that Logos is the meaning, the order, the principle behind everything. He took the same idea and he extended it to the world itself, the reason behind all reasoning, the word before all words. There was a logos that gave life and light and meaning to everything, but it was, if you like, a, a silent word, a mystery. I mean, we can see it. We know it's there everywhere. But what does it mean? And so philosopher after philosopher after him took this up and pondered, what is this logos? And the story goes that one day when Plato was sitting with his students gathered around him, that the great philosopher said to them wistfully, confessing his limitations and also his great longing for knowledge, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. There's the height of human philosophy. We know that this Logos is there, and the world somehow was made by it and governed by it, but if only we could know, if only there could be this Logos, this word from God, then we could finally understand. Now, we might sing about a silent night, but thank God we do not have a silent God. He is there and he is not silent. That word that was before all words, we are told in this chapter, has been declared to us in the coming of Jesus. This word became flesh. And to the Greek reader, therefore, who was perplexed by this question, we find here the meaning of all meanings, the word before all words, that which gives everything its significance, our maker, our sustainer, uh, more recently, the famous scientist Stephen Hawking said, the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. John's opening line means that theory is a person. In creation, in life, in light, in all the world, he goes on to say, in every man, it is Christ who shines forth. And... He's not just the author of the light by which the world sees. He is also the true light, he says, the fountain of all knowledge, righteousness, goodness, and truth. So, kind of philosophical first point, but you, you see how John is so beautifully weaving together all the hopes and expectations of the Jewish people reading in the scriptures of this word of God and the, the, the promise that God would dwell in the midst of his people. And there answering all the questions and the aspirations of the Greeks and all their philosophy and the quest for meaning and the thirst for knowledge, that these things together are found all in Jesus.
the Word who was in the beginning. Second, we are told here that the Word was with God and the Word was God. Also a very difficult statement. Many writers on John's Gospel have pointed out that uh, this verse that begins the book is matched by the climax at chapter 20, verse 28, where Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And these two statements form the literary term is an inclusio. They, they form the, 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 the brackets of the book, the frame in which you are to see all these I am statements of Jesus, how he can forgive sins, what the miracles mean, why Jesus will say in chapter 8, I tell you before Abraham was, I am. In, 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 these, in this frame, we are being introduced to the wonders of Christ's deity. That the same Jesus who could be on the thirst on the cross dying and say, I thirst, can also say, before Abraham was, I am. And that paradox is captured for us in these introductory words. The one statement only a man can make, and the other only God himself can make. But the wonder is that both are made by the same person. Here is this awesome mystery that is presented to us right from the beginning that God is, uh, well, beyond our understanding and yet revealing the truth so personally, so intimately. This Christ who has perfect sympathy and compassion also has unlimited power. Think of it. This terrible suffering of his is all the more terrible given who it is suffering there. But it is therefore able to cover the sins of men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and all ages. What, what a mystery. And at the same time, what an answer. This mystery is also the answer of answers that gives from God our every need. And what confidence and assurance and peace and boldness and strength should be to the one who takes the time to ponder this incarnation the one who holds the reins of the universe, which he made, is our brother truly. And by this we begin to know something of the width and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Well, I hope I've uh, introduced these things to give you something to think about. You know, centuries ago, people used to lock themselves into monasteries for their whole lives so that they could contemplate Christ, the living God, laid in flesh appearing, as we sung this morning. Although that monastic ideal was a mistake, it was not as great a mistake as Christians today who never pause to meditate on the glories and wonder of the astounding truth that our God is with us, that this word that was in the beginning was with God and was God the source and well-being of everything that we believe and hope is somehow tied up in these words. And as Rutherford put it in his typical way, oh, what love Christ would not entrust our redemption to angels, to millions of angels, but he would come himself and suffer in person. He would not give a low and base price for us clay, but would buy us with great ransom, 
Oh, we are underbid. We undervalue that prince of love who did overvalue us. We will not sell all we have to buy him, but he sold all that he had and himself too to buy us. And so I have no idea what particular need that you came in here feeling or what word you hope to have received of comfort. You may feel something keenly at this season of your life and you may have some particular grace or virtue or help that you most desire, but I tell you this, that there is no surer path to every grace. There is no help or virtue or anything else that has not given, been given to us by God than through Jesus Christ, through whom he made us, by whom he sustains us. He was with God. He was God. He has become flesh. He has revealed the glory of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. And whatever you need, ultimately, it can be found only in him. It is a mystery, but it is a tremendous answer. And that answer is our hope. For the rest of the time this evening, I'd like to consider with you briefly what, what this might imply for adoration, revelation, salvation, and direction. I've put before you some high philosophy and mysteries as John writes these difficult words that are at this one time so uh, beautiful and simple and at the other time at the at the same at the same time so much above us it 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 gives us some information but it causes us to know more in fact charles spurgeon said if you don't long to know christ more than you do now you don't yet know him at all for there is no higher beauty no greater glory and no surpassing love than this that he the radiance of the glory of god is worthy of all worship and awe and wonder and adoration and affection. And that's why this is presented to us so majestically, that he, the radiance of God, took our filthy rags and was, has clothed us in his own divine, brilliant righteousness. He humbled himself on the vilest cross to raise us up and conquer death. And so we can know God himself as he truly is, only through Jesus as a father. In fact, as our own father. Paul says God has shown this light in our hearts of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is a cause of profound wonder and adoration. If God, who made the heavens and the earth in order to save us from our sins, came into this world incognito, to win our salvation, in order to do for us what we were helpless to do for ourselves, that he might restore us to fellowship with him and give us endless life. I say, if, if he did that, surely this is the most astonishing news, the most wonderful shout from the housetop, thrilling news that there could be. And we sing rightly, come let us adore him. Or Calvin wrote, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in Christ, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. If there is anything to adore, if there is anything to astonish and amaze and cause us to wonder, it is found right here for us in the verse that we read. Adoration. Second, this is clearly for revelation, that God has not merely sent us a prophet, but rather came himself. Now, if somebody showed up on your doorstep with a letter or message or telegram, if they still send those things, from the president, well, you would certainly have 
the full attention. But what if you opened the door and there was the president? But I say to you, what is God like? Is God there? Is God for me? And I love what Michael Reeves said. For all our dreams, our dark, frightened imaginings of God, there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. Anyone who has seen the Father has seen me, he says. God cannot be otherwise. Here is his word to reveal the glory of the Father, to learn more deeply through Jesus what our God is like far more than all the prophets before him. God, who spoke at various times and in various ways to the fathers by the prophets, we read, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And if we would know anything of God, we could not do better than turning to Jesus. Third, salvation. Salvation. The constant message of the Bible is that this is that Jesus has come not merely to be worshiped not merely to reveal the glory of God as we have said but to achieve for man what he could never achieve for himself namely salvation for salvation is of the Lord our salvation cannot come any other way especially through higher consciousness positive thinking religiosity five pillars and eightfold path oh no God himself will come to do what no one else can do. And understand, dear friends, if you've never understood before, this means that the one whom you see carrying his cross to Calvary is God, Emmanuel, God with us. There on the cross dies the one who made us. Our God has become incarnate in order to be murdered by his own creatures to deliver them from sin and death to eternal blessedness. And if that is what God is like, if that is true, we need to think, what kind of God is this? Not the kind of God we might naturally imagine him to be. I mean, we don't have to know Jesus to know God in so many ways. God has testified about about all around us. God is a glorious creator. He's clearly a God of giving. He tells people at Athens that, you know that God isn't served by men's hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Any right-thinking human being understand that God is giving and gives and gives. That is his nature. But in Jesus, we see shocking depths of self-giving of condescension, of humiliation, of forgiveness, grace, and tenderness. I mean, at at one point, Peter says to Jesus, Look, Lord, you shall not wash my feet. And he replies, Look, I have come, God has become incarnate precisely to wash your feet and cleanse you, shocking and offending all human expectations in order that by such lowliness he might win our salvation. This Jesus is God made manifest, and we see in him Jehovah saves, Yeshua, Yehoshua, the God who himself has the heart of a servant, the one who does not stand on his dignity or merely look to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. 
we read elsewhere, and we are therefore to have the mind of Christ. Or as Jesus himself says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so this is why John starts where he does as he introduces us to the one who is hung on the cross to say, you must understand, this is God incarnate. It means that sin is a much greater problem than you had previously understood, but where sin abounded, grace has much more abounded. And if he puts away your sins, they will be gone indeed. He is our salvation, and salvation is of the Lord. And if this is what you need today, well, there's only one place where you can find such salvation. There is no other place than the one who was with God and who was God and became flesh. God is man, man to deliver. Fourth and finally, this is important for our direction. Direction, or uh, that he leads us. It says elsewhere that we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was at all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Um, Book of Hebrews says, this is something wonderful that the incarnation implies for us, that we can know God's sympathy for us as never before, for Christ has experienced the full range of human emotion and misery, yet without sin. The captain of our salvation had to be made perfect through sufferings. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. He has navigated the whole of your human misery and experience without sin in order that now he might be a perfect minister to you, filled with sympathy for you, that even as the man Christ Jesus, yet sitting on the throne above, in whom now all power, the power of God is joined in a single person, that this one is able to answer your prayers and needs in a way that you might be able to go on. He knows what it is like to be forsaken of friends, to be crushed by injustice, to be overwhelmed by pain and death itself. And this is the one that we have been given who can lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, where no other companion can go, and bring us to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He himself has gone to death and has risen, that he might lead us in that same train of victory. We can know certain comfort that God God himself has traveled our difficult road, not for his own sake, but for ours. In fact, a darker road by far. And he has been appointed to lead us safely home. So often we feel alone and isolated. Our loved ones don't understand or they misunderstand what we are going through. But there is no lack of sympathy in heaven. He knows all about the losses and the crosses. And so we can return to Christ again and again with our burdens, with our agonizing choices to lay them down before him. And know that even when we feel like we are suffering alone, we never suffer alone. For he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All these things that we learn and more are introduced to us in the Gospel of John. A special treasure, no, that's blessed the hearts of God's people through the centuries. Luther once said, this is the unique, tender, 
genuine chief gospel? Should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the Epistle of the Romans and the Gospel according to John escape him? Christianity would be saved. Well, God forbid. But this prologue, this introduction, is perhaps the most majestic opening to any work of literature ever. These words that are so simple, not only in English, but especially in Greek. And, and yet, what John reports so beautifully and wonderfully here immediately became a matter of, of, of an unending reflection and even controversy in the early centuries of the church. In these simple words is revealed a truth so challenging, so important, no doubt, but so mysterious, so difficult even to state accurately that the early church's finest minds struggled to describe it in any reliable form of words. It is a doctrine so deep, so beyond human comprehension, that the fathers went as far as they could. They, they, they bounded off the, the errors until they could only use the phrase then, finitum non compax infinity, that is, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. They go so far. They state so much. He is personal, yet infinite, imminent, yet transcendent, the eternal creator who existed before and above all other things, who is forevermore joined into this creation with flesh and blood like yours and mine. What a great mystery. On the other hand, specifically because of this incarnation, that same passage says that we are able to know God, close and personal, as never before, in the most earthy way, because there is no God in heaven unlike Jesus. One modern writer says, there is no God behind the back of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the open heart of God and the very love and life of God poured out to redeem humankind. The mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and to save sinners. So in conclusion, God's perfection is on display in a way that we can understand and relate to in Jesus. We can see God's love in action, God's compassion, God's condescension, God's wisdom, God's goodness. These aren't abstract things, not anymore anyway. In Jesus, God's glory is revealed as a man among men. And the Christian life, apart from anything else, as we said this morning in so many ways, is primarily about knowing God. And in this wondrous introduction, we are reminded that Jesus is not revealing some God in general, nor does he offer some abstract salvation that is anything like the the religions of the world. Jesus reveals a God who has always been eternally and essentially a father, that we might have him as our father. He prays, O righteous father, though the world does not know you, I know you, And these know that you have sent me. I declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Here is the very heart of God revealed in Jesus. This is what kindles the spark of love within us. Some measure of this eternal, inscrutable majesty 
that has come among men penetrates our thinking and we bow in the depths of the soul and give him glory, then and only then can we begin to live something worthy of a Christian life. Thank God that he has been sent to us. Let us pray. We pray, gracious Father, once again, that we, knowing just something of this infinite mystery and majesty, might adore, might learn of you, might seize that salvation, might go boldly to the throne of grace to be led our every step. We, we cry out to you in our human condition. We have so many miseries on the right hand and on the left. We feel alone. And thank God we are not alone. We thank you for the one who has become flesh, and not for his sake, but for ours, the one through whom grace and truth have come to us all, the one who has declared you. It's in his name that we pray and give you thanks.